Welcome back to the Fair Work Podcast. I hope you had a nice new year. We're back for the year continuing our new series, Welcome to the Planetary Labour Market. If you haven't heard any episodes so far, I'd recommend that you go back to the beginning and start with our first episode, An Incomplete Prediction. But if you just want to listen to this episode, then as a quick recap, this series is about forms of gig work that can be done remotely from anywhere in the world. It's about the emergence of platforms that manage the transactions between workers and employers scattered across the four corners of the globe. It's about the creation of labour markets that exist at the planetary level and the social, political and economic questions that this poses for workers. In part one, we explored the human labour involved in the creation of data sets for machine learning. We looked at working conditions involved within this process and spoke to workers based in different countries around the world. In part two, we're turning our focus to look at content creation. I hope you enjoy this episode and if you have any questions, thoughts or reflections, don't hesitate to pop me a message. My email is in the description for each episode of the podcast. Okay, now on to this week's show. If we could just start off and if you could just um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about um, your YouTube channel. Yes, sure. I'm, I'm Jörg. I'm a German. I'm 56 years old now. I have been a YouTuber for now, I think, about 13 years. Hello and welcome to the Slingshot channel. Quite long. Um, uh, my channel is about uh, homemade weapons and launchers. Today I want to show you my full auto mini Gatling slingshot gun. Often on the comedy side. Uh, Many fans requested I do a video about how to weaponize IKEA pencils and therefore I decided to give it a go. A little bit on the badass side too, but I often say I'm on the sunny side of badassery. <laughs> it's becoming almost pastiche to reference this statistic, but in 2019, a poll found that 30% of children in the UK and the US would choose being a YouTuber as their preferred profession, ahead of jobs like astronaut, musician, athlete or teacher, making it the top rated profession amongst school-aged children. It's a sought-after job, apparently. And as a cultural phenomenon, YouTube is, is pretty amazing. Like this network of personalities, of bloggers, of experts, who you don't just watch, but actively interact with. It's like if you could write to your favourite TV star and they would respond every time. Just pop a comment in the box and likely they'll get back to you. YouTubers don't just make videos, they build followings. They connect with their fans and they've been so successful at it that what started out as a fringe phenomenon is now overtaking mainstream film and TV. But YouTube isn't just a cultural phenomenon. It's also an economic and technological phenomenon as well, involving the use of a digital platform to manage a distributed workforce spread across the globe. And the practices and protocols that Google the company that owns YouTube, employs have a huge impact on shaping the working conditions that YouTubers experience. I'm Robbie Waring, and in this two-part episode of the Fair Work Podcast, we hear from Jörg Sprav, a German YouTuber who runs the Slingshot channel, a channel where he makes homemade slingshots and launches. Jörg is a bit of an unlikely hero for the labour movement, but his story says a lot about what happens when we cut through the media hyperbole to view YouTube as a workplace like any other. 
So this week on the Fair Work Podcast, we hear his story of getting into YouTube, what's actually like making a living from YouTube, what happens when the platform on which you've built your livelihood starts to make seismic shifts, and how he formed the world's first union for YouTubers. We start at the very beginning with his upbringing in the industrial heartland of Germany. Hope you enjoyed the show. Um, and I wanted to ask a bit about your upbringing. Um, and so where did you grow up uh, and what was it like there? I grew up in a suburb of Dortmund, which is a major city in Germany with about 600,000 people in there, right in the uh, Ruhrgebiet area, which is extremely densely populated. Um, and uh, yeah, I went to school there and also lived there for a long time. Um, uh, yeah, and of course, my it was actually my dad who got me into slingshots as he taught me how to make them when I was really young. <laughs> Other than that, um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of, because we lived in the suburbs, uh, there was a forest nearby. I spent a lot of time in the forest and um, and therefore, yeah, I'm, I still had like a very close fascination, a very, a very specific fascination about all these things that you can do with, uh, you know, uh, in the woods and uh, just with your hands and simple tools. So I think it came from that um, experience as a child. Um, and kind of thinking about that, kind of like, what was Dortmund like? What was it kind of, you know, what did it, what was it like growing up there? Like, what did you spend most of your time doing? As I said, we lived in a suburb of Dortmund, which was pretty far away from the city center. And before I was allowed to drive a moped, I was pretty much trapped in there because it was like a two hour walk just to the bus station. <laughs> so. <laughs> It is. Uh, it, it sounds like Dortmund is such a big city, but we really lived on the countryside next to Dortmund, which was technically still a part of the town, but far away from it. So uh, I, I grew up on the countryside, I have to say, really. Right. So I grew up with uh, animals and, uh, and lots of green and uh, not a lot of uh, events. It was fairly uneventful. And I had to do a lot of walking and everything. And, and since it was really hilly, um, even riding a bike wasn't so easy. Now, to this day, I'm actually not a fan of riding a bike since uh, it's very exhausting to do this in a hilly area. <laughs> so, uh, and otherwise, of course, Dortmund is a working town. It uh, used to be a coal miner's town, and my grandfather was actually a coal miner. Um, and um, therefore, you have uh, the typical things that you would find in other industrial cities too, I would say. It's not particularly pretty, even though you can find nice spots even there. And how did you kind of get into slingshots and kind of, do you remember kind of that process of building your first slingshot? Uh, you remember it very clearly. I was really young, probably six or seven at that time. And my father taught me how to do it by just, you know, finding a proper uh, fork, like a tree fork. I think we used hazelnut mostly. And then, uh, then an old inner tube from a, a bike. Uh, how to do it, and how to attach a pouch, and how to attach the whole thing to the wooden frame. And I spent, I'm not sure how many hours and days and days of shooting it, and I actually got very good at it at some point. And um, I did this for a long time, and until then other stuff was getting more important, like girls and mopeds and uh, cars and education and uh, university degrees and all this. So 
So I had a huge, huge break in between. Uh, and only when I was about 40, I rediscovered it as a hobby. Uh, like, you know, a lot of men, when they're getting older, they rediscover children stuff. So like, you know, uh, mini trains and I don't know what, uh, collecting stamps, I don't know. But I rediscovered slingshots. Uh, and then I got back into it and I discovered that now today the materials are much better. You know, you've got much better rubber than we used to have. Uh, now I have the money to pay for the tools to make really, really good slingshot, not just tree forks. And it fascinated me and I'm, to this day I love doing that. And I mean, kind of, you know, the typical image of kids with slingshots kind of is that they use them often to kind of get into some form of trouble, they end up getting into some form of trouble. Was, was, was that the same with you? Yeah, actually, when I was 10 or 11, I started actually to sell slingshots to my classmates. And uh, I even had a little homemade brochure that I hand-drafted, of course, with the pencil. So all the forks that I found, I sketched and then uh, offered them at some price. I think typical price was between 50 cents and the and the um, a Deutsche Mark 50 for a slingshot, so <laughs> affordable, and uh, that was really good business. Of course, I, I only had this one version of the brochure, so whenever I sold something, I had to scratch that one out and then uh, give it to the next potential customer. And, but then one of my customers used it to destroy a window in school. And the headmaster then uh, put an end to my flourishing little business. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, and of course, out in the woods, there's not so much what you can really destroy. But I remember very vividly that I once killed a bird and was incredibly sad afterwards. And from that moment onwards, I never again killed anything that lives. So you say you kind of got back into it when you were kind of about 40 years old, kind of a bit later in life. And when did the kind of YouTube aspect of it come in? And when, when did you get into kind of creating a YouTube channel? Actually, not much later. At that time, I was working for a company that um, developed and sold video editing devices. And uh, you must understand that this was like 2008 or 2009, where everybody was still recording on tape. You know, it was digital, but it was tape. You can't upload a tape to YouTube. <laughs> so you have to go through a computer first. Uh, or to, through an editing system. So it was my job to find out if our output files would be compatible with YouTube, which was a fairly new service back then. They only started in 2006. And got, when I got into it, they were just bought from Google. And Google deleted all the illegal copies of TV series that dominated the platform to that day and started, you know, it's only for homemade stuff. So it was really early. And typically, if you uploaded something, the aspect ratio didn't work or the audio and the video was not in sync and all this. So I had to find out, you know, if this is compatible, but I needed material. So I filmed myself shooting my newly uh, found uh, slingshots and uh, uploaded them and showed them to some friends in some internet forum that I was active on. And I remember that at one point I got a hundred views, a hundred people had seen my homemade video. You know, way back then, that was completely, completely overwhelming since for a homemade video, you actually had to, you know, force people at gunpoint to sit down and watch your video. So, so, so 100 people was a major number. So I got hooked and made another video and another one and another one and uh, then I got addicted to it. So that was how I got into YouTube. And kind of what was the transition like? from this going from something as a hobby that you were just doing to it actually becoming a full-time job? 
Yeah, well, it, it, it then at some point I remember I got the first check from YouTube, you know, so YouTube sent me a check and that's how they paid their creators for many years before they switched over to other payment forms. And I remember it was 88 euros uh, because they only paid out once it exceeded 100 US dollars. So I was thinking about framing that one because I thought it's my first money that I've, uh, I've, I've earned as a as a film creator and not as a manager. <laughs> so, so um, uh, and then uh, the money gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and it was at some point I was able to pay all my materials and you know with it and started to make some money. So it was really, really a slow process until I realized it, I can probably live from that money, you know, not, not in great comfort and not with the security that I had in my main job. And I remember then came the moment where one of my employments ended and uh, I simply decided to give it a go and not send out my resume to new potential employers and try my luck as a YouTuber. So, uh, so, but that was not an easy decision because I was actually walking away from a very secure and, and really good income. In the history of YouTube, 2012 was an important year. This was the year in which the YouTube Partner Program is introduced. And this made it possible for creators to earn revenue from advertising. To get a cut of whatever YouTube makes from ads at the beginning and end of their videos. For the first time, people posting videos had the opportunity to make money out of their content. And in doing so, YouTube created a new job. That of the YouTuber. Up to this point, YouTube was purely a video hosting platform in the strictest sense. But with the introduction of the YouTube Partner Program, there was now the potential to earn money. In some cases, significant money through curating and building a channel. At this point, the relationship between YouTube and its content creators took on an important shift. YouTube went from being a space purely for individuals to share videos with a wider community to one of potential income. YouTube became an employer, transitioning from being a social media platform to being a labour platform. Robin Kaplan is a senior researcher at Data and Society and a specialist on platform governance. Um, and I wanted to start off by talking specifically about kind of YouTube. What was the original dream and kind of ethos of YouTube when it first came about and it first started? So YouTube began in 2005, primarily to host amateur videos. But I would say that the ethos of YouTube was always very contradictory. So it was being developed during that moment of Web 2.0, where there was a lot of talk about the promise um, of empower that participatory culture could hold not just for driving um, internet business at the time and growth, but um, for kind of improving society as a whole. And users were really encouraged during this um, time period um, to give to the web. Um, so the ethos for uh, YouTube was to broadcast yourself, um, which meant you know putting yourself online, putting yourself out there, uh, which was, you know, framed both in terms of this democratic and participatory potential, um, but it also served to generate mass financial value for, for, for platforms like YouTube that were being built during this time. For me, I'm like really interested in this kind of like 
this moment in, in the history of YouTube with the development of the, the YouTube Partner Program. Um, and I wonder if you could just for us kind of like briefly describe kind of what the YPP is. So the YouTube Partner Program is what is called a revenue sharing agreement. And it's a, an agreement that, a program that YouTube developed where they basically agreed to share a portion of the advertiser revenue with the creators that are uh, making content for their platform. Um, they don't share revenue with all creators. Um, they have to fit a certain, um, certain requirements uh, regarding channel size um, and how much watch time they have and whether they are conforming their content to these things called advertiser friendly guidelines, which is kind of a version of content moderation. It's like a step above content moderation uh, where YouTube gives certain constraints to um, their creators, their partners about what they can and can't say on their channel. Um, and that will determine whether or not um, they get to keep their advertiser revenue or that advertiser revenue gets pulled away. How can we think about its introduction as shaping the way in which um, the platform itself fundamentally functions? Um, and like, how has it shaped the relationship between YouTube and the creators that use the platform to reach an audience? You, the YouTube Partner Program shapes the relationship between YouTube and uh, users on the site in a variety of ways. So firstly, for those in the program, it's um, it's a labor contract. It serves to structure labor. Um, it holds producers on YouTube to a different set of rules, but also gives them a lot more tools, access and uh, materials, resources and more sway, uh, depending on how many uh, users you have. So the YouTube Partner program is a labor contract. It's, it starts to structure that labor, the conditions for uh, the labor for these creative producers who are on the site, uh, but also create something aspirational within the app. Um, it's something that YouTubers are working towards, towards unlocking features or access that can grow their following. And in that sense, YouTube was um, trying to incentivize this kind of professionalization of user-generated content. They wanted people to invest in equipment. They wanted people to invest in time to make content better for the app, uh, which would then make their site more valuable because if the content improves, you would assume that people would enjoy watching that content more. For me, I think it's really interesting to think about, um, you talk about kind of the idea of an incentive. Um, at the other end, what kind of, what tools does YouTube has to kind of like, um, to discipline? Yeah, so, so the YouTube Partner Program, it serves as that contract. So it, it incentivizes, but it also creates the conditions. So if you have something where you're allowed to monetize content, it, where there where there's a possibility for revenue sharing, there's also the possibility that that revenue can be taken away. And um, YouTube has done that. They've always done that through what they call these advertiser-friendly guidelines. And the advertiser-friendly guidelines have changed a lot. Actually, not as much as you would think throughout the years. Um, but these, there are these kinds of bigger categories where they've been vaguer at times and more detailed at other times um, that really outline what, uh, what YouTubers can say um, or not say. So it may be something that we might expect. So like YouTubers can't use obscene language. Um, 
I, I think that there's prohibitions against nudity, uh, but then for a while as well, YouTubers were not allowed to um, talk about uh, what YouTube called controversial subjects. So that could be anything from um, climate change to and global warming to um, to wars to um, to Black Lives Matter to really really anything any topic that that they can construe as um, political or or controversial. Robin Kaplan of Data and Society. And yeah, you talk about in 2013 how AdSense was your sole thing you could focus entirely on just the channel you didn't have to worry about anything about that uh worry about any other things you could just focus on that revenue and how has that changed over time well this has changed very dramatically and very suddenly because what i call the golden years they stretched out between 2013 and 2017 where YouTube would monetize everyone. So the YouTube partnership program didn't have like an entry threshold. Everybody who uploaded automatically started to make money. The only thing is that they wouldn't pay it out if it's less than $100 accumulated. So sometimes it took people a whole year until they exceeded a, an accumulated amount of more than $100, but then eventually they got paid. So YouTube did not really analyze the content. Actually, they didn't know about the content, except if some people flagged the video for something illegal happens in there. As long as you met their community guidelines, which are pretty, pretty open, YouTube did not care for the content. They put their ads next to your video. Um, and uh, of course, only if you then did something illegal or so, then they would eventually delete your video. But they would never analyze it. They would just let it stand until people complained about it. And uh, therefore, YouTube in these years was completely wild. You could do things that you you could never do on television. And you know, that was one of the things that also I think made YouTube really great as a platform. You know, we, there was there was no limit what you could really put out there. The craziest idea, the craziest pranks, everything was fair game on YouTube. And as long as you were able to um, get the audience being enthusiastic about your content, you made your money. You know, so. In 2017, that changed. In 2017, following reporting from The Times, companies started to cotton on to the fact that their adverts on YouTube were sometimes appearing before, after, and even on top of videos posted by members of the likes of Al-Shabaab and ISIS. As some large multinational companies withdrew funding, YouTube was forced to act. Their response to attract back advertisers to the platform was to introduce a system that automatically analyzed every single video uploaded to the platform. It would then categorize videos based on the content. And one of these new categories was videos that were demonetized, where videos would remain on the platform, but creators could no longer earn revenue from views. These are videos that aren't bad enough to be removed completely, but edgy enough that advertisers might not be happy for their brand to appear alongside their content. Initially, there was no public announcement. No one thought to inform creators about this change. It was only when people noticed a consistent drop in their ad revenues that came to light that something significant had changed. 
and that really was a major disaster for a lot of YouTubers. They called it the Adpocalypse because it was like an apocalypse, but only for advertisers, advertising market. Uh, I know a lot of YouTubers who practically lost their entire channel due to it. What would, if to put it in monetary terms, for a number of YouTubers, what was the financial impact of the adpocalypse on their earnings? So before the adpocalypse, I made an average about uh, of, an, of about six thousand five hundred euros a month, um, and that was fairly stable. And then when the apocalypse happened, it dropped pretty much instantly to about 1,000 euros a month, which is the difference between able to pay your bills and uh, not being able to pay your bills. I guess one question I have is, does your work feel kind of precarious? And is being a YouTuber, does it feel like a precarious kind of profession? Um, it, it Actually, it felt really precarious when it happened, when the apocalypse happened. No, that's been a few years ago and so I have adapted and I think a lot of people have adapted too. Way back then it was like um, your entire life has been taken away from you because, uh, you know, if your income collapses in, you know, in that short period of time, what do you do? Um, going back into my old profession was nearly impossible because at that time my footprint in the in the internet was so huge that it was no longer possible to completely wipe it out. In conservative Germany, I would never have been able to get a job as an executive manager, uh, definitely not for a publicly traded company. They would Google me and then we'll find all these crazy uh, videos about me launching toilet uh, brushes and plungers and so on. I present to you the toilet brush revolver. <laughs> And I would never give him food. There was no going back. Those bridges were burnt. So I felt pretty helpless. I didn't really know what to do. I was angry and helpless. And um, and and yes, my life was very much under under threat. So uh, I got dependent on my wife's income for something. And that was something that never happened to me before. Uh, I have to say it's. Uh, and then a lot of people didn't have wives with that income. So I was actually still on the better side of the whole deal. The problem is that it became very clear to all of the YouTubers at that time that we were depending on just one employer because there was no alternative platform that was uh, viable. Um, YouTube could do with, with us whatever they wanted. We had no say in the whole process. We didn't even have someone that we could talk to. Uh, you could just only send the messages that were probably never responded to or you got the, the, the same pre-formulated response that are written by lawyers and are completely useless for individual cases. So, so it was super, super frustrating and, um, and, and it was really a bad experience. Makes me actually angry and sad just thinking bad, thinking back about that time. So in 2017, the adpocalypse happened um, and you saw a huge decrease in, in revenue from your YouTube channel. And what did you do about that? All this to come on next week's episode of the Fairwork Podcast, launching Monday, the 23rd of January. I herewith officially initiate the YouTube Creators Union. They have what we did not have. They had the money, they had experience how to work with really big organizations. And plus also they had uh, the lawyers that we need for this. Um, yeah, I think it's just like difficult for society to understand that uh, YouTube is uh, like work for many people. 
At Fair Work, we believe that all work can and should be characterised by fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management and fair representation. Platforms ultimately have the power to improve standards and the ability to choose to. Many platforms operate in numerous countries around the world, and whilst every country, every city and every worker is unique, many of the issues experienced by workers are transnational. In addition, platforms often operate across multiple countries and the practices which they employ have huge impacts on the lives of gig workers around the world. Platforms can take a proactive approach to ensure that the work they provide is fair and decent. We're actively campaigning to improve conditions for gig workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work. This episode was written and produced by Ruby Warren and music was composed by Louis Bollet's.